Hello and welcome, welcome, welcome to, I'm not even going to figure out what, not, what episode we're on anymore because I don't know. So welcome to another PEM podcast, the Psychic Eye Mystery Podcast starring me, Victoria Lloyd, and my fabulous sister, Sunday. <laughs> Hello. Uh, coming to you from Michigan and uh, the unknown. We're not going to give any details about my sister somewhere in the United States out there. There she is floating around bunny gate still ongoing. <laughs> There's nothing left to eat. The drought has just destroyed everything. Unfortunately. Oh, man. Yeah. You know, and like who knew that Michigan was going to be the place really to end up because we've had the most spectacular summer. Like it's really been incredible. We've had great rain. The temperatures have been mid seventies to low eighties, um, fairly dry days. Today's a little humid, um, but I'm going for a motorcycle ride later. So what do I care? Excuse me. <laughs> I was so excited about this motorcycle ride. You have no idea. So, um, so for those of you who <clears throat> don't know, and don't, why would you, I don't really share my life much either. Um, I'm, I'm seeing a guy who is six foot five. Um, I like him tall and, um, he is Chris Christopherson from here up and he is Channing Tatum from the neck down. He is breathtaking. Um, and, um, and, and occasionally a lot of fun <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> so anyway, so he, um, he's an engineer. Um, and, uh, he, uh, works on software for motorcycles. So he is a motorcycle kind of expert and he teaches, uh, motorcycle riding and all that stuff. And, uh, one of the first nights that, um, he came over and made him dinner <clears throat> and I walked him out, he gets on this motorcycle and out of the parking lot, he's doing a wheelie and I'm like, okay, all right, I'm smitten. That's it. I'm done. I'm done. You're sexy. Okay. <laughs> well, you're going to have a hard time hanging on because he has no love handles to deal with. So I'll find a way. Okay. I will find, there's, I have there's faith. enough there for me. To I have, a, I have, I have faith that you'll find Trust something to hang on me. to. Yes. He's a beautiful man. Anyway. Um, so yeah, so I'm going for a motorcycle ride with him later and like, I have a helmet and I have a jacket. <laughs> And I'm 22 years old. It's so stupid, but like, I'm really excited. I've never been on a motorcycle ride. So this will be, you know, got to try, got to try everything once, I guess. Right. So I guess, I you guess for me afterward, you know what happened. Spoiler. I do. Yeah. <laughs> Please put that on my tombstone. If that happens, yeah. just be no. like, here lies Victoria splat. <laughs> because I will laugh from the other side. I will laugh. Speaking of the other side, speaking of the other side. So I did a, um, a reading for a woman whose brother-in-law came through and he was the first one through. And normally, just so everybody knows, normally it's someone in the, in, for me at least, it's someone in the ancestral tree. So normally it's parents, grandparents, sometimes even great grandparents, depending on who's still alive down here. <clears throat> um, but it, there was none of that. So this gentleman steps forward. He's the brother-in-law. Um, he identified himself by name, which is like a rare for me. Um, so I was like, bullseye. Um, and, um, I'm like, um, I think I was asking her, I said, uh, uh, did he die like that? 
And she goes, yeah. And, um, I'm like, wow. I said, um, gosh, you just make me feel like he was alive one minute and then dead the next. And she goes, yeah, he was murdered. I wish I had a symbol for like murder so that they could show me, you know, like I have one for suicide. Um, oddly a gun is, uh, what I have for suicide, but I don't really have one for murder. So he was just kind of random violence. And the very sad thing was his brother had driven by, waved at him minutes, like two minutes before he was murdered. He was murdered at a gas station. His brother had driven by, saw him. His brother was on his way to work. Um, his brother was a fireman and he waved at him. And you know, to this day, this brother still feels really, really guilty that he didn't stop because um, he's you know, thinking like, woulda, coulda, shoulda. So <clears throat> that came up in the reading and this gentleman on the other side was very clear. He was like, if he had been there, he would have, he would have been murdered too. Like we both would have been dead. There was absolutely nothing his brother could have done. So this happened, I think, um, let's see, like 14 years ago, something like that. And this brother has been dealing with this guilt for those 14 years. And it's really, really, it's so sad. Um, it kind of makes me like want to do readings for people who are kind of stuck in that perpetual guilt um, for things that really were not their fault um, and that they probably could not have changed um, even if they knew that something was about to go down. Um, so, you know, I got to pass on to her, please, please, please tell, tell your husband that there was absolutely nothing that he could have done and he definitely would have been murdered too. So, yeah kind of a tough one, but also healing, you know? <clears throat> so I do like those readings. I do like it where, um, cause he was so excited to come in. I think he'd like elbowed everybody else out of the way. He was so excited to come in. And he was, I think he was excited because he'd been watching his brother for 14 years deal with this guilt and really struggle with it. Um, uh, so, uh, I loved passing on that message. That was great. And I got to pass on a message to his son. His son was only 14 when he was murdered. Um, so he, you know, gave me a bunch of stuff to pass on to the son. It was, it was lovely. It was absolutely lovely. So it kind of makes me go, you know, I'm so fucking lucky <laughs> to do this. You know, like there are days where I'm like, oh God. <laughs> um, but for the most part, it's, it's, I don't like labeling people who are psychics, I don't like labeling, labeling them as they have a gift because I think that that sends a message like we're somehow better, like we were the chosen one when it's bullshit. Everybody's got um, a radar. Everybody has one. Everybody has one. And if you work on it, it's a skill. And if you work on it, you can improve it and you can tune in as well, um, just as well as I can, just as well as any of the great ones can. Well, I would, I would say that uh, your sixth sense, right? It's just, it is described as a sense. So for someone who is a virtuoso from a music perspective, they have a gifted ear is how they get labeled. Or someone who's a sommelier might have an exceptional palate or a chef might have an exceptional palate. It's just a, a, a sense that is highly tuned um, or more evolved, more perfected than the average person. It doesn't mean we can't develop those talents, but some people have a, a more enhanced capability. I, I, I totally see your point, but I still don't believe that. I believe that there is pressure at a young age to develop your intuition. And for me, that was because we lived in an extremely volatile 
um, home where violence was common and um, I needed to know what was coming. So from my standpoint, I don't think I was born with any kind of talent at all. I just don't think I was, but the circumstance of childhood um, put pressure on that skill to develop. That's what I think. That's what I think. So, um, you know, there, Sandy, you probably are absolutely right, but I just haven't really seen it. Every, every really, really gifted intuitive that I know, Kevin, um, Carissa, um, uh, Rebecca Rosen, there was a struggle. There was a real struggle there. Um, and then that pushed that sense to come to the forefront. So, um, it's kind of like, you know, if you're put in a perfume factory and told smell all the perfumes all the time, you get good at smelling perfume, you know, mm-hmm. the different subtleties of perfume. So that's the way I kind of look at it. I, I just, I hate it when people are like, yes, I'm gifted. No, you're fucking not, you know, you're just not, you're not, you worked on it, take credit for the work, but don't sit there and think like some magic fairy came down and tapped you on the head and made you special. And why do you keep telling me that's what happened to you? I don't get it. Because it <laughs> did happen to me with you. <laughs> Point. <laughs> or, or as Doc, my bird would say, boop. boop. Every time I go in for a, ki- for a kiss, Doc is like, boop. It's adorable. So adorable. So book promotion. <clears throat> Lethal Outlook is another book in the psychic. I don't even know what that it's another book in the Psychic Eye Mystery um, series. And um, this one, Abby, is definitely now entrenched in Texas. And um, uh, there is, there's a family whose daughter has gone missing. They suspect the husband. Um, Abby doesn't believe the husband had anything to do with it. Um, and she has to get to, she and Candace have to get to the bottom, literally the bottom of it. Um, you'll know if you read the story. Anyway, um, there's a scene. <clears throat> so in the background of this whole book, um, Kat, who is loosely, loosely based on my sister, very, 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 very loosely, like very loosely, very, very <laughs> loosely based on my sister, has um, arrived in, in Texas from her home in Massachusetts. And she is pl- trying to plan Abby's wedding to Dutch. And um, Abby is not cooperating with anybody, which is apropos Abby, right? Um, so anyway, so Kat has her kidnapped <laughs> and brought to her. And um, so Abby's abducted and um, she had a, an injury from the previous book. <clears throat> um, I think she was shot in the hip or something, if I remember correctly, <clears throat> or broke it or something. And so she's been walking around with a cane (laughs) and so her sister is confronting her and Abby is like, you know, you know, what did, you know, what are you thinking kidnapping me? And she's like, well, you don't return any of my voicemails. And she's like, so you send this thug to manhandle and grope me. And the thug is like, Hey, I didn't manhandle and grope you. And Abby goes, you broke my cane. And he's rubbing these three welts on his forehead. Oh, I'm funny. <laughs> so I was reading that just as um, just as Sandy and I were about to uh, hop on Zoom together to record the podcast. And I was laughing away going, wow, you know, I haven't read the book in like 12 years, 12, 13 years since I wrote it. Um, so it's it's easy to forget 
some of those, you know, nailed it. Got it. Um, those moments, which are cool. So anyway, lethal outlook available everywhere. Books are sold. Um, so check it out. Check it out. We have a great case today. We have a, this woman is fascinating. I never heard of her. Yeah. I never heard of her. You know, the sad thing too is since she was born the same year that, uh, Grams was born. Okay. Yeah. So Grammy died. I didn't know that Grams died in her forties. I always thought she died in her fifties, but she died in her forties. Another classic, you know, parents telling you the history of our family and it's completely wrong. Yeah. Completely wrong. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So, um, take it away. Okay. So this, uh, week's case is part of our series of, um, people that have passed away as a result of being affiliated with the Kennedys and some way shape that's clearly my dog i'm sorry um associated with the kennedys in some way shape or form and this week's case is focused on dorothy kilgallen and while her name isn't familiar today there was a time from the 1940s to the mid-1960s when dorothy was one of the world's biggest media stars her fame as a news writer and tv personality paved the way for many of today's popular female journalists to follow in her footsteps her untimely death in November of 1965 at age 52 from a lethal dose of alcohol and barbiturates remains undetermined as accidental or suicide. Or could the cause of her death be the result of something more sinister? Born Dorothy May Kilgallen on July 3, 1913 in Chicago, Illinois, Dorothy had journalism in her blood. Her father, newspaper reporter James Lawrence Kilgallen, moved the family to various regions of the United States until 1920, when the International News Service hired James as a roving correspondent based in New York City. James and his wife, May, settled in Brooklyn with their daughters, Eleanor and Dorothy. After completing two semesters at the College of New Rochelle, Dorothy dropped out of school to take a job as a reporter for the Hearst-owned New York Evening Journal, a sister company to International News Service where her father was employed. She quickly became a star reporter in her own right, covering court cases that in 1935 included the trial of Bruno Hauptmann, accused of kidnapping and killing the son of aviator Charles Lindbergh. In 1936, eager to make a name for herself after being promoted to a columnist, Dorothy was one of three New York journalists competing in a race around the world using only transportation available to the public. Dorothy finished in second place by completing her journey in 24 days, 13 hours, and 51 minutes. In late 1938, Dorothy began writing a daily column called The Voice of Broadway for Hearst's New York Journal American. The column, which she wrote until her death in 1965, featured mostly New York show business news and gossip, but also ventured into other topics such as politics and organized crime. The column's popularity grew quickly and was syndicated to 146 newspapers. On April 6, 1940, just shy of her 27th birthday, Dorothy married Richard Colmar, a Broadway musical comedy performer. Partners in life and in work, the couple had three children, Dickie, Jill, and Carrie. And early in their marriage, Dorothy and Richard... Wow. <clears throat> Excellent. Children are home. <laughs> Ignore the lurking creature behind me. <laughs> this is so professional. I just want to, you know, go far. I don't feel so bad anymore for the train, for the bird, for the dog. Yeah, no, I'm okay now. <laughs> okay. I just have to digress and say that while I love them, I can't wait for them to go back to college because the delivery of a ginormous inflatable hot tub showed up at my house the other day and I didn't order it. They <laughs> think it's going to be part of their entire off-campus living experience. So it gives you a taste of what I'm dealing with here. I love my nephews. I love them. <laughs> Back to our story. 
On April 6, 1940, just shy of her 27th birthday, Dorothy married, married Richard Colmar, a Broadway musical comedy performer. Partners in life and in work, the couple had three children, Dickie, Jill, and Carrie. And early in their marriage, Dorothy and Richard both expanded their respective careers into network radio and garnered a huge following. By April of 1945, the couple co-hosted a WOR AM radio talk show from their 16-room Park Avenue apartment entitled Breakfast with Dorothy and Dick, which featured a, news, a mix of news and entertainment. The show followed the couple when they purchased a neo-Georgian townhouse on East 68th Street in 1952 and continued to air until 1963. In early 1950, Dorothy joined the panel of the very popular television game show entitled What's My Line? The series was telecast from New York City on the CBS television network, and Dorothy remained a panelist on the show for 15 years until her death. Her last live appearance was on November 7, 1965, the day before she was found dead in her apartment. In 1954, Dorothy took a task of covering the Sam Shepard murder trial, who was a doctor convicted of killing his wife at their Bay Village, Ohio home. Dorothy was astounded by the verdict because she felt there were serious flaws in the prosecution's case. Nine years after the verdict and sentence, and after the presiding judge had died, Dorothy joined forces with F. Lee Bailey to reveal evidence that the presiding judge in the Shepard case was biased against the defendant. In July of 1964, a federal judge ordered Sam Shepard's release from prison, and after Dorothy's death, Shepard was, retired, was retried and acquitted of murder. In 1956, despite their friendship, Dorothy wrote a multi-part front-page future story entitled The Frank Sinatra Story, which published intimate details about Sinatra's private life. The story was carried by multiple Hearst newspapers across the U.S., and the famous singer was so irritated by what Dorothy wrote about him that he pur purportedly sent her a tombstone with her name carved in it. Following the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in November of 1963, Dorothy became publicly skeptical of the Warren Commission's report about the assassination and Jack Ruby's shooting of Kennedy assassin Lee Harvey Oswald. Determined to ensure that Americans got the full story about what happened in Dallas in 1963, she began probing the police and the FBI investigations and compiled an extensive file of information about Oswald and Jack Ruby. Dorothy grew highly suspicious that something was amiss when she learned that San Francisco attorney Melvin Belly a civil litigator who hadn't tried a murder case in years would actually be representing Jack Ruby. Coincidentally, or perhaps not, one of Belly's top clients was prominent mobster Mickey Cohen, a connection that brought further speculation about the possibility of organized crimes involvement in the JFK assassination. Dorothy went on to publish several newspaper articles on the subject, which included a February 23, 1964 story in the New York Journal American about a conversation that she had had with Jack Ruby during a recess in his murder trial. Dorothy reported that Ruby had a trembling handshake like the heartbeat of a bird and seemed unnerved. He was reportedly told her, I feel like I'm on the verge of something I don't understand. The breaking point, maybe. After his conviction, Dorothy continued to investigate the story, convinced that the whole truth had not been told. After obtaining a copy of Ruby's June 7, 1964 testimony to the Warren Commission, she published her findings in August of 1964 in three installments on the front pages of the New York Journal American, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. Through her reporting, she revealed that Jack Ruby told Chief Justice Earl Warren that he believed JFK's assassination had been the result of a plot and insisted that he had not been involved. In 1966, Ruby's conviction was overturned by an appeals court, but he died of cancer before he could be retried. In September of 1965, column, 
Dorothy published a story about Lee Harvey Oswald and the Kennedy assassination, and in October, she apparently traveled to New Orleans to pursue a possible connection between Jack Ruby and the then Louisiana mob boss, Carlos Marcello, who had apparently ordered Ruby to kill Oswald to tie up some loose ends. But Dorothy never got a chance to finish her blockbuster story. On November 8, 1965, she was found dead at her East 68th Street, New York City townhouse. Her death was determined to have been caused by a combination of acute alcohol and barbiturate intoxication, but the medical examiner was unable to determine the circumstance that led to the cause of her death. Dorothy's funeral mass took place on November 11th with 2,600 people in attendance. Mark Shaw, a, a former criminal defense attorney, author, and CNN legal analyst, spent years investigating the circumstances of Dorothy's death and believes that she was in fact murdered to prevent her from fully uncovering and revealing the truth about what happened in Dallas in November of 1963. Shaw points to several clues that were discovered at the time of Dorothy's death that indicate her overdose was staged. Her body was found in a townhouse bedroom that she never slept in, sitting up in bed wearing makeup, false eyelashes, a hairpiece, and a matching peignoir and robe, not her usual pajamas, with a book that she'd already read turned upside down in her lap. Her required reading glasses were missing from the room, and an unfinished drink sat at the bedside table. Even though Dorothy was always cold and it was a cool November night, the air conditioning was inexplicably turned on. On-scene investigators discovered an empty bottle of Secondol sleeping pills and quickly concluded that Dorothy was yet another celebrity who had overdosed on drugs. The medical examiner, however, found the presence of three barbiturates in Dorothy's system, Secondol, Tuinol and a powerful sedative hypnotic medication that Dorothy's doctor had not prescribed, and Numbutal. The remnants of Numbutal were discovered in the rim of the glass recovered from her bedside table, pointing to the fact that the dangerous drugs had been administered in a powdered form, blunting the conception that Dorothy died accidentally. Instead, Shaw's meticulous investigation suggests that Dorothy died when she consumed a drink that was spiked with the three lethal drugs by a man with whom she was having an affair an Ohio newspaper columnist named Ron Pataki. Ron was supposedly the last person to see Dorothy alive, reportedly meeting her at the Regency Hotel bar a few blocks from her East 68th Street townhouse during the early morning hours of November 8, 1965, and then accompanying her to her townhouse where she was ultimately found dead shortly before 9 a.m. by one of her closest friends, her hairdresser, Mark Sinclair. Dorothy's intimate relationship with Ron meant that he was one of the few people in which she confided in about her research and conclusions about the JFK assassination. It's likely Pataki was spying on Dorothy at the behest of the FBI or the mafia or both. A few hours after she died, but before police arrived, witnesses saw FBI men or perhaps mobsters dressed as agents carrying files out of Dorothy's Manhattan townhouse. Members of her household reported that Dorothy's notes and files from her investigations into Jack Ruby, his mafia connections, and the Kennedy assassination were missing. And to date, the documents have never been found. For years after her death, Pataki made several incriminating statements indicating that he knew her drink had been poisoned, including authoring two smoking gun poems that he published. Despite his complicity in Dorothy's death, Pataki has never been charged in Dorothy's murder. Dorothy Kilgallen was a mix of Oprah, Winfrey, and Barbara Walters, and yet sadly, her fame died as quickly, uh, very quickly following her passing. The rumors of her death being attributed to a drug and alcohol dose sullied Dorothy's reputation and served to publicly discredit her in her years of stellar reporting. And as a result, Dorothy was soon forgotten by the very public she had worked so hard to inform. In the aftermath, in 1979, a U.S. House committee in reinvestigating the JFK assassination concluded that Marcello had motive, means, and opportunity to have President John F. Kennedy assassinated, 
though the committee was unable to establish direct evidence of Marcello's complicity. Shaw believes that the mafia felt double-crossed by JFK's father, Boston businessman and Prohibition-era bootlegger Joseph P. Kennedy. Kennedy also asked the mob to swing the 1960 presidential election using his influence with the unions in the West Virginia and Illinois and the two states Kennedy needed to carry to defeat Richard Nixon. In return, the mafia was led to believe that the federal government would look the other way regarding their illegal activities. However, once elected, JFK's appointed appointed his brother Robert as attorney general, who once in office began to vigorously investigate the mob's organized crime syndicates. The mob's solution was to have JFK assassinated, knowing his predecessor, Lyndon B. Johnson, would likely replace RFK as, a, as attorney general. Sorry. Knowing that his predecessor, predecessor, Lyndon Johnson, would likely replace Robert Kennedy as attorney general, and Robert Kennedy, lo- Robert Kennedy and Johnson loathed one another. At age 87, Ron Pataki is still alive and living in Columbus, Ohio. Dorothy's husband, Richard Colmar, remarried 18 months after Dorothy's death, moved back into their townhouse, renovated it, and remained there until his death in 1970 from a heart attack. Sources for the story include Dorothy Kilgallen, Wikipedia, How Stuff Works, Did Journalist Dorothy Kilgallen's Probe of JFK's Assassination Lead to Her Death by Pat- Patrick J. Kiger, 11 the Daily Post, local author says columnist cracked the JFK case in 1965, just before she was murdered by Dave Price, 12-3-18. And MarkshawBooks.com, 4-7-21, letter to Sergeant Detective Philip Panzarella, cold case squad of the New York City Police Department. So, <laughs> so what do you think happened? So um, this is, it's really interesting that um, Dorothy died in a very similar manner to Marilyn Monroe, right? Um, coincidence? Um, it's it's really interesting that- It's convenient, um, if nothing less, it's convenient. Yeah, it is, it really is. So <clears throat> let me get this right, uh, right out of the way. Well, a couple of things right out of the way. One, I've always believed, always, Lee Harvey as Oswald acted alone. I do not believe he was hired by anybody. I have looked extensively into his history. He was the perfect candidate to try and um, uh, gain fame from murdering a high profile person. So we've seen this in pretty much every um, mass shooting episode since, right? So I don't believe he, there's just no connection between Oswald and crime. It's just not there. There's no there there. So was Ruby hired to murder Oswald? Why? He wasn't hired to murder JFK. He did it to gain fame. That's why he did it. Um, So Ruby acted alone, I believe. I don't think that um, he was hired by anybody. I think Ruby was fairly disturbed. I think he was really um, upset that um, his president had been murdered and uh, just you know, in a moment of rage and opportunity, murdered Oswald. I don't believe that there's any connection to Ruby and organized crime. In fact, Ruby's brother, I think, um, several years later, um, went to his grave saying, you know, my brother was a patriot. He loved JFK. He loved him. So um, it's understandable that he would want to murder the assassin. Um, So I absolutely believe um, Ruby acted alone. And I know that there's 
all of this room, right? All of this room for these conspiracy theories to catch fire and, you know, run and run amok. Um, and I think that Dorothy probably wasn't the most honest of reporters. I think that she was more interested in um, fanning the flames than she was necessarily in telling the truth. I don't know that she had the most um, intense journalistic integrity. I just, I've just questioned that. I'm just, just putting it out there. I just think that she was like, you know, in it for the, for the clicks, for the viewers, for the listeners. Um, she was living um, previously in a 16 room Manhattan, <laughs> you know, like this woman, this woman was used to a nice lifestyle that had come to her from um, exposing gossip, Frank Sinatra, blah, blah, blah. So she didn't shy away from things that could be interpreted differently. Um, and I think that she, it, it helped her career. I think that she was kind of a, a big gossip and enjoyed it, enjoyed passing on, you know, I heard a rumor, blah, 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 blah. And trying to find links that people would believe were more than they were. Do I think she was murdered? A hundred percent. I think she was murdered. Absolutely. I think she was murdered. I think um, Pataki murdered her. I think that they were having an affair and I think um, Dorothy wanted it to end. And I think that she had something on Pataki. And I think in light of the Frank Sinatra story, um, I think that he was worried that she was going to run it. So uh, he killed her. I, I think he, he murdered her. I think the FBI moved in <clears throat> to clear out um, files, et cetera, because um, that's what they did with Marilyn. And they had to get rid of the listening devices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Of right. course, Dorothy would have been targeted as someone that the FBI would have been very interested in, you know, who she talking to, what does she know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I believe they had her home bugged. I believe they were very interested in her files because if she's doing all of this background work on a mobster, of course they'd want those files, right? Of course they would. Um, it's evidence yeah. <laughs> they can use to go after this mob boss. Right. So that's kind of, you know, that's kind of, that's truly what I believe happened. I believe she was murdered. I believe it was um, Pataki. I believe it was because he was afraid of what she was going to expose about him individually. Um, hence why he was still walking around after he published two smoking gun poems. So yeah, the mob didn't care, you know, because they didn't hire him. Do you think that he'll ever be brought to justice? No, no. Um, when I tuned in on his energy, he feels he feels like his memory isn't there. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, and I don't want to, you know, accuse anybody of having dementia or Alzheimer's that doesn't. But there's a sense of like those types of um, diseases, for lack of a better word, they're kind of easy for me to pick up. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, and when I <clears throat> aim my radar at him. That's kind of what I, what I'm hitting. So he might be, he might have a, a fantastic and clear memory. Um, but I don't think so. That's my opinion. So my opinion is that his memory's gone. Um, and, um, he probably soon will be too, because he's 87. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's what I think happened. Okay. He got, it. He got away with murder. So Marilyn Monroe, tons of speculation simple suicide unfortunately dorothy yeah. straightforward murder, murder. <laughs> yeah no conspiracy yeah. 
and uh, Mary Pinochet Meyer. Again, no conspiracy. Right. Right. She was targeted because she would have been easy to molest, easy, easy to rape, little tiny thing that she was and turned out she wasn't, um, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, anytime I hear like there's all this speculation about this big conspiracy, you know, that there's like all of these government hands involved, man, my my (laughs) skeptical meter just goes through the roof. Mostly because when have we ever seen the government carry off anything smoothly, right? That's Without true. Anybody knowing, like it just does not happen yeah. at all. You know, it's going to be bungled more often than it's going to be carried out. So, um, so I just ugh, conspiracy theory stuff. It's just it's wackadoodle to me. It's wackadoodle to me. So um, we have one more in the Kennedy series, and then we will be. Then we're doing the men behaving badly. Men behaving badly, right? And then after that, we're taking, um, we're looking through some of the suggestions from the fans. Correct. Um, just as a as a note, Sandy does look at when anybody is like, "Oh, you should look into these murders." She does look into it, and she and I, and I have had a couple of conversations. And if it if it was just too brutal of a murder, we're not going to touch it because uh, we've we've hit on a couple in the past six months that have really upset either one, one of us at one time. Um, and so we're going to try and back away from some of the really, really gory, horrible ones. Um, and, you know, dabble in something a little bit lighter. It's, it's really, it's painful to dive into those, to research those, and also to send my radar into those. That's, it's just really hard. So, um, thank you for your suggestions. Um, but just as a caveat, we're just not going to touch anything where, you know, people were castrated. We're not going to touch that. That is not going to happen. So uh, just as an FYI. So anyway, all right, Sandy, I love you so much. Thank I, you I for you writing too. this up. This was fascinating. I'd never heard of this woman. I can't yeah, believe I've never that, heard of this You know, I, I have to just comment on the fact that at the time that she was murdered, um, it was really easy to wipe away a, a woman's identity and, it, and kind of um, sully her reputation. Same thing right. kind of happened with Marilyn Monroe to a certain right. degree. Um, right. And Dorothy Kilgallen, probably had a lot of people that did not like her style of journalism and maybe it was easier then to sort of shut her down but if you consider that oprah winfrey is who she is and diane sawyer and barbara walters um dorothy kilgallen you know kind of built they were on her shoulders so right she she should be commended for the amazing career she had as a young woman yeah um into her early 50s that uh you know was breaking rules and Changing, changing the way that we report. Like the yeah. whole around yeah. the world using public transportation. Yeah. I was, I kept thinking like, my God, would I be brave enough to do that? I don't think I'd be brave enough to do that. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I, I kept thinking like, who did she take with her? Yeah. You know? I don't know. Was it, a, know. was it alone? My God, you know, yeah. in the 19, was that the 1940s, 1950s? There it was 19, early 1950, I think. Yeah. yeah uh, like, like, holy Wow. Like actually it was 1936. Oh my God. That's right incredible. after World War II or no, right was as World War II was getting started. Excuse me. Holy shit. Yeah. That's um. and what route do you even take? You know, like, like just to set off on that. And as a, as a young woman, I, mad props, mad yeah. props for that. That's, yeah. that's just 
incredible, really incredible. Woman's fascinating. She's absolutely fascinating. It's a shame that um, her life was cut short for sure. Um, and thank you again for digging in and pulling her out so that we could give her at least a little bit of credit. Yeah, you know, my pleasure. Where it's, where it's definitely I, due. I apologize to the audience for the disruption during the middle of the story. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure there is now no more food in my refrigerator because yeah. they come yeah, home. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, the Sasquatch walks by, Sandy. What's, <laughs> what's in the fridge? <laughs> yeah, so good times, good times. Right. Please tell my ne- my nephew, on. my my favorite nephew until my other favorite nephew shows up, please give him a hug from me. See, this is, an ex- this is an opportunity for you to give him a hug and for him not to go get off me woman, because you can say, this is a hug from auntie. Yeah. That's not going to work, but thank you for the suggestion. <laughs> oh, give it a try. Give it a I'll try. try. All right. So thank you all for tuning in and uh, we'll be back next week with our last installment within the Kennedy K- Kennedy connections. And I will try and have a quieter recording session as we and hopefully I will be alive after my motorcycle. <laughs> Please be <Splat>. careful. Yeah. <laughs> no. All right. Love you. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. okay. All right. Thank Bye. you. Bye.